So we'll uh, the end of First John chapter five. First John chapter five. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray up for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is his truth. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this book, First John, that we have been enjoying for some time, for 26 weeks now. And we pray, Lord, that as we're finishing it up, that you would encourage our hearts with this final message as we consider these things. Bless it to our hearts and our lives, and bless us, Lord, to be transformed through the spiritual truth that you have given us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have here, in his final verses, three things that we know. And this is kind of the wrap-up of the whole book. And we'll look at those now. The first, and really the most critical thing John has been teaching us through this letter, is that everyone who has been born again who has been born of God, will turn from their sin. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is in them and protects them. And the devil, of course, can no longer touch them. Everyone who has been born of God. Jesus, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1, 9 through 13. That is how he starts off his gospel, that we are born of God, not of man, not of the will of man, not of the flesh. He's talking about our new birth, our spiritual new birth. If we have received him, then we are indeed children of God. 
He writes of that in this letter. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it doesn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when we, he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes purifies himself as he is pure. And this relationship between being a child of God and being holy is one of the main themes in the whole book of First John. And I want, for one last time in this book, to look at that Old Testament promise that we've talked about so often. You remember it in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Last look at that for a while. I want to sprinkle, I will sprinkle, God speaking, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put in within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will give I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Those last two verses, twenty six and twenty seven, is where I want to focus your attention for a moment. The Father has given us a new heart. He's given us his Holy Spirit, caused it to dwell in us, and therefore he, along with his Holy Spirit, and especially as a result of our new heart, causes us then to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Or as John puts it in our verse, we do not keep on sinning. As he says earlier in the book, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed, that is the Holy Spirit, abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God, 1 John 3, 9. And so our being children of God, being born again, gives us this new heart, puts the Holy Spirit in us, the Holy Spirit living in us, affects our will. He is there inside of us. We abide in him. He abides in us. And the result is we have a new nature. We want to live for God. We, we have a new birth. And Paul says that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. In our new life in Christ, we no longer live for sin. But we should be living for righteousness. As we abide in God and in the light. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 1 John 3, 6. And so everyone who has been born of God has this new life in them. And that new life in them, that new creation in them, causes them to live a life in a new way, a different way. Of course, the one born of God that is mentioned in verse 18 is Jesus Christ, our Lord, our King, the one who protects us. He is, after all, the only sovereign, King of kings, Lord of lords, 1 Timothy 6.15. And as it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? 
You made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection under his feet, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering of death, so that by grace of the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Hebrews 2, 6-9. We know that God has put everything under his feet, everything under subjection to him, and nothing is outside of his control. But... The author of Hebrews points out, now we don't see it that way right now. We shouldn't panic because we don't see it that way. Peter warns us, you know, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5.8 Indeed, we see the godless of the world, the devil, constantly in rebellion against Christ, in rebellion in war against Christ, against his kingdom, against everything that is right, everything that is good, everything that is holy. But we shouldn't be overly concerned about that. Jesus is the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's sovereign even over their rebellion. We can still say that he works all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11, including their rebellion, including their sinfulness. That's how we can hope in the promise that we have from God, that he will work all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28, we don't need to worry because he is sovereign. Everything is subject to him even in their rebellion. In the final subjection, there will be no rebellion. The rebels will be in hell being punished, and his people will be purified from everything that causes them to sin, and we will be able to live in perfect harmony and sinlessness. And because he is sovereign over all things, in that manner, he is protecting us. We are those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1.5 And we can say like Paul, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep it until that day that which I have entrusted to him. 2 Timothy 1.12 That is my salvation. I can trust him. My confidence is in that promise. The promise Christ made that all the Father gives to me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, John 6, 37. My confidence is therefore in his promise, his nature, in his sovereignty, his absolute power, in the fact that I have read through 1 John and I have prayerfully considered John's tests and I believe myself to be in Christ and Christ to be in me me to be a child of God, to have been born again. And thus I have confidence that the evil one, the devil, cannot touch me. 
Yes, he prowls around like a roaring lion, as we read in 1 Peter 5.8. He's seeking someone to devour. We've been warned to give the devil no opportunity, Ephesians 4.27. And we've been encouraged to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Courage to the end, therefore, to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Ephesians 1, or Ephesians 6, 11 to 13. Now that's a great encouragement to be standing ready, to be prepared to resist the devil so he will flee from us. John has warned us, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way in which he walked, 1 John 2.6. James tells us to submit ourselves to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you, James 4.7. Obedience is linked to our abiding in Christ. Our abiding in Christ is linked to our protection from the devil. And so they're all interconnected. Having the right life with God is part of our protection from the devil's schemes. And really, other than God's will to allow us to be tested, we can be assured that the devil has no power to touch us. He can do nothing but what God allows, and he's not going to allow the devil to harm us. And so if we've been born again, we've been delivered out of the domain of darkness, transformed to the kingdom of his Son, and we are safe from the schemes of the devil. We are, verse 19, with God. The world, however, is with the devil. John reminds us we are from different worlds. Remember that was the sermon from 1 John 4, 4 through 6. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world, the devil. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this the world knows the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. First John 4, 4 through 6. Our heavenly kingdom where we belong in their earthly, worldly, fleshly kingdom, are completely incompatible. John has warned us not to love the world and the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God, Abides forever, John 2, 15 through 17. We are from different worlds, and they are not compatible. The world lies in the power of the devil. We are part of the kingdom of God, not the world. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. They were... Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and I have, and they have kept your word. 
John 17, 6. He reveals himself not to the whole world, but to those the Father had given him out of the world, separated from the world. He goes on in verse 9 to say, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus makes a great division between the world and those the Father has given to him, those who are now part of his kingdom by virtue of having been given to him by the Father and having been given faith and having been born again into the kingdom. That distinction is very great, those two camps completely separate. Once we were part of the world, but he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1.13. As we've seen, there's no compatibility between these two warring camps. On the one side, you have those who hate God and everything God represents and everything God is, especially hates those who are loved by God. They do not love the kingdom of God. They do not love his word. They do not love his law. They do not love holiness. They do not love righteousness. They do not love truth. They hate all of those things. Jesus warned us, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But you are not of the world because I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. There will never be peace between the world and the Christian, except where the worldly person becomes a Christian, when they were born again. Unless a worldly person be born again and enter the kingdom of heaven, there can be no peace. Christians sometimes try to make peace, though. They try to love the world and be loved by the world, in spite of John's warning. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2.15 They still want to love the world and be loved by the world, prompting James to say, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? God does not want us to put our hand to the plow and look back. He does not want us to say we love him, but keep our hands in the world and be part of it and to love the world. The world, he says, belongs to the evil one, the devil. These are two kingdoms. But you might say, isn't it our father's world? There's a hymn, right? This is my father's world. God is indeed the creator of the world, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens, the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the faith of the deep. And the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the face of the waters. Genesis 1, first two verses. If you read through the whole chapter, you can see that God created all things out of nothing in the space of six days, and it was all very good. It belongs to God. If we read the beginning of the book of John, the Gospel of John, 
We see in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And so Jesus also, you got God the Father, the Holy Spirit, now Christ, involved in the creation of all things. And they claim ownership of all things. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle of a thousand hills, God says in Psalm 50, verse 10. When he called the people out of Israel, he told them, Therefore you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. Exodus 19:5. All of the world belongs to him, even the godless nations, and he does with them what he wills. He goes on to say in Jeremiah, It is I who by my great power and my outstretched man hand, arm have made the earth and the men and the animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever I seems right to me. And I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him, Jeremiah 27, 5 and 6. Now, if you read that section, you know that the purpose of giving it to Nebuchadnezzar was that Nebuchadnezzar might punish the nations for their idolatry and their wickedness and their evil. But all the nations belong to him. But there are two kingdoms. How can the world lie in the power of the evil one when it still is my father's world? Well, it starts back in the Garden of Eden, of course. The serpent says to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes shall be opened and you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. Ah, So God is being evil and deceitful and wants to keep you ignorant. You should rebel against him. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food, appealed to the flesh, a delight to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. So she took and ate and gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, Genesis 3. And the punishment to Adam, he said, Because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By your sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. Dust you are, and dust you shall return. Genesis 3:17 through 19 They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They were separated from God and from his kingdom at that point. And all men since them have been born not into the kingdom of God, but they've been born cursed and separated from God. Now, this is Paul's point. Let's read Ephesians 2, first five verses here. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and once you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So no, we all once followed the course of this world. We all were once amongst the sons of disobedience. We all once lived apart from God, carrying out the desires of the mind and the body, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. So all men, by nature, by birth, sons of disobedience, followers of the devil, children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace have you been saved. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. All men were born estranged from God, children of wrath. All men follow the devil. All men are in the devil's kingdom because of the sin of Adam. Spiritually dead. Now, we can see what John is driving at here when he says that the world belongs to the evil one. I think most clearly in Jesus' temptation. You remember his temptation? Luke chapter 4. I'll start at verse 5. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. So the devil is saying all the kingdoms of the world have been delivered to him, and I give it to whom I will. If then you will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Luke 4, 5-8. through Understand, if the nations didn't belong to Satan, if Satan was lying when he said, all of them have been delivered to me, then it wouldn't have been a temptation. And Jesus' answer to him would say, be, they don't belong to you. But his answer to him is, no, you shall worship God only. It was a real temptation. They belonged to Satan because of man's sin. They all belong to him in that sense. All the people of the world are born estranged from God, children of wrath, enemies of the kingdom. They develop that hatred for God and hatred for the things of God their whole life. And they seek to do their master's will in this world. Just as we seek to do the will of God more and more the longer we're a believer... So they seek to do the will of their father, the devil. Jesus talks about this. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. John 8, 44 and 45. John has talked about this enmity before in his epistle. He says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. 
Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous, 1 John 3.12. The world is at enmity because with the kingdom of God because the world belongs to the devil. It is in the power of the evil one. Understanding this dichotomy between the world and the kingdom of God, between the worldly people and the children of God, is really one of the pivotal truths to really understanding the present world. And it's a pivotal truth in leading a godly life. Understanding that the godless are really an enemy of God and want to lead us astray from God. And won't be happy with our following God. They cannot be happy in our pursuit of God. Now, we are no longer in the world because the Son of God has come. Verse 20 and 21. The Son of God has actually come in the flesh. God's, John sometimes leaves, the gospel, leaves things a bit mysterious, but I think the gospel is clear. Son of God has come in the flesh. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, 1 John 4, 2. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God's Spirit abides in him, and he in God, 1 John 4, 15. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins, 1 John 4, 10. Well, we were under God's wrath and curse for our sins. We were children of wrath both in this life and the life to come. Christ died for us, making peace with God, appeasing God's wrath, paying the full and just penalty for our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. He is our propitiation, John says. God, is only, God has given us this understanding of these things through his spirit, by putting his spirit in us. When he took out our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh, he put his spirit in us, and his spirit is there to help us reason through and understand these things. He says, you've been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all, knowledge, all have knowledge, 1 John 2.20. In his gospel, Jesus promised that the Helper would come, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance that which I've said. Now, brings to remembrance primarily through the Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. As we know our Scriptures, the Spirit is there to bring it to memory. We can understand these things better as we go through it again and again and think about it and meditate upon it and reason with it and wrestle with it sometimes. We understand the Gospel and we understand what God has done and what manner of love he has shown us in making us children of God. And in God's Son, then we have, as he says in this verse, eternal life. John started off this passage, and he's come back to it now, started off this book, comes back to it now. He said in the beginning, 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, and which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. 
The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and is now made manifest to us. He's in a somewhat veiled and spiritual manner referring to Jesus, of course. That was 1 John 1, 1 and 2. Eternal life has been one of those central themes throughout the entire book. He says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. 1 John 2, 23 through 25. And so our believing in the Son and embracing the Son and the Father, they abide in us, we in them, we have then eternal life through that relationship that forbidden personal relationship with Christ, forbidden by the Catholic Church, but required by the Scriptures. If you don't have it, you don't have eternal life. Eternal life is really also wrapped up in the test that John has been giving. If you'll notice, <coughs> it says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. First John 2.15 If we're worldly, we don't have the Father. If we don't have the Father, we don't have the Son. If we don't have the Son or the Father, we don't have eternal life. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life. 1 John 3.15 This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and eternal life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, whoever does not have the Son does not have life. 1 John 5, 11 and 12. Knowing we have, it is one of the purposes of him writing this book. I write these things to you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That eternal life is discovered by us to be known, to have, by knowing the tests. Are we really walking right with God? Do we have God in us? Do we abide in him? How do we know? The tests that we've seen tell us whether we really are or not. Which brings us now ultimately to his conclusion. His conclusion of the whole book. Keep yourselves from idols. Now you might think, well, we don't have idols in our day and age. Well, we do, but we don't have them in our, our circles. I remember growing up, I probably mentioned this before, but every taxi cab in the greater Boston area had a, what is it, a St. Christopher, the god of travel, or the, not the god, but the, um, what do they call those guys? The saint of safe travel, on the dash, glued to it. People had a Mary in the backyard, usually in a shrine, because it was a very Catholic area. Uh, people had various ones that they carried around in their in their school bags, even in school, that they would pray to during the day for success. Idols of wood, stone, and metal. And certainly they're worthless. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. 
They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make sound in their throats. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Psalm 115, verses 3 through 8. Men turn to idols, they turn to false gods to get what they want. They can't get what they want from the true God. As James says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask to spend wrongly, to spend it on your passions, your adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Again, back to this point. The world belongs to the devil. If you want to be friends with that, you're trying to be friends with the devil. If you want to be friends with the devil, you're trying to be an enemy of God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Worldly people want worldly things. They want the pride of life. They want the pleasures of the flesh. They want riches. They want wealth. They want power. They want prestige. They want those things. Sometimes they just want a successful harvest. But if God's not giving that to them, then they make a God of agriculture. They make a God of fertility. And they worship it because they want to get what they want. If God's not doing it, they'll make up a new God to ask. Make up many gods, one for each specific area. Just like the saints that the Roman Catholic Church made up, they had a different saint for everything that you could pray to. That helps you to have a better chance of getting what you want. Because you're praying to somebody who specializes in that area. Except they're mute idols. They're nothing. And worse than that, they invoke God's wrath. Because he has from the beginning warned people not to do that. Of course, that's not the only kind of idols. God says, you shall have no other gods before me in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Deuteronomy 6, 5. Christians, that's every one of us, can sometimes be tempted to seek what we want from something other than God. And in doing so, we push God to the side. And that's no different than idolatry. It may not be money, it may not be pride of life, it may not be pleasure. It may even be legitimate things. Healing, recovery, endurance. We need to endure this trial. So we look to entertainment or we look to pleasures or we look to a worldly group. I remember a young lady, she was supposedly a Christian. She got into being skinny, became bulimic, throwing up. Uh, Got some counseling from her church, decided to get some help from her doctor. Her doctor got her hooked up with a psychological health group who she got her real help from them. They encouraged her to feel good about herself, didn't call it sin. And over time, she she turned away from the church and condemned the church and left the church and left her husband. And that can happen. We seek 
solutions apart from God. Why? Because God's way is hard. Because sometimes God's people are blockheads. Uh, They're not helpful. But when we start looking apart from God, what happens? We start drifting away from God. And it's really becomes an idol. Whatever solution we have other than God, whatever comfort we take other than God, can become an idol in our life. The question to ask, ask ourselves, whether it's just how do we get through life or how do I survive this present crisis, is where is God in this? Is our heart divided? Are we being pure to God or are we pursuing other sources, other solutions, alternative to God? Now, I'm not saying that we you know, let go, let God do nothing. Right? We, we do work. But I mean, are we looking to spiritual help Are we looking for supernatural help and comfort other than from God? James says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. James 4.8 Idolatry begins in the Christian life with being double-minded. With part of our mind we pursue God, with part we pursue the world. And we seek from the world its solution to our life's problems. That's no solution at all. And that's why James is, or John has given us these tests and why James is so harsh on this matter. Are we looking to God as a central key part of our life? Does he have all the solutions and all the knowledge and all the wisdom? Yes, we can look to our brothers and sisters. We can form support groups within the church. But when we start turning to secular activities, secular groups, it can get very dangerous because they'll lead us to turn away from God. And they'll lead us to the world, to the flesh, to the devil. So let us keep that in mind as we remember this great book of 1 John, a book worthy of coming back to and rereading from time to time to remind ourselves of these tests that we've seen and the life that we should be leading. I don't know about you, but I've enjoyed it as one of my favorite books so far that I've studied at this, preached through at this level. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for these things that we can know, for these things that you have taught us. Thank you that we can know that we have eternal life, that we can test our life and see how we are doing, that we can see where we're getting off track, see where we're turning from you and turn back. And pray that your spirit within us would warn us that you would give us no comfort and no quarter when we turn from you, that we might be reminded to turn back greatly, to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and to love our brother as ourselves. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.